We're going to pray, and then I'm going to get into Revelation Lesson 4. I'm very excited about it. Thank God for this technology. Father, I thank you for allowing us to have Sunday school via the internet when we can't have service because of weather and, and icy roads. Keep our church family home safe and keep them warm. We thank you, Lord, for giving us wisdom and revelation in our knowledge of you. Bless this lesson, Lord, as we teach on the revelation, we teach on the rapture in this lesson. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. Help us, Lord, to comprehend your truths, and may this greatly encourage us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, well, welcome to lesson four on the revelation, and this lesson is entitled, Nine Evidences of a Pre-Tribulation Rapture. This is very critical in discussing the revelation and in our overall working doctrine on eschatology because we have to understand what a rapture is, why do we believe in a rapture, and when does it happen? As I've been studying the revelation for these lessons and eschatology in general, one of the things that has really stood out to me over and over again is how how encouraging these lessons ought to be and how much there should be hope in us knowing who we are in Christ and what we're called to do in these last days as part of the church the Lord's body. So these lessons I've written up until now and even including the next one are designed to be very encouraging to help us resist the fear of the day that wants to kind of paint this picture that we're going to be living in fallout bunkers or we're going to have a worldwide Auschwitz type camp where Christians are going to be rounded up. That is not what's going to happen to the church. That is what's going to happen to some degree during the tribulation, but as we've been proving over and over again in our lessons and in our studies of the Revelation, there's things appointed unto the church and there's things that are not appointed unto us, and we have not been appointed unto wrath, and that's a reference to the Lord's wrath. The Lord's wrath is specifically the tribulation from year one to year seven, the seven years that is Daniel's 70th week. So I'm trusting this is encouraging you. I find that when when believers are encouraged and full of confidence, they are more productive and they are more verbose or or vocal or loud in their Christian witness. There ought to be a confidence and a courage about us knowing that we are here to do God's work and nothing's going to hold us back. Amen. So let's look at our lesson here on the rapture. And this one's called the nine evidences, or there could be more than that. I just have nine Nine evidences of a pre-tribulation rapture. That is a rapture of the church that happens before the tribulation starts. So the rapture is the catching away of the saints of God by the Lord Jesus to be with him in the air. That's what the rapture is. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17 say, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. We know this is not the second coming of the Lord because the second coming of the Lord has him stepping and touching down on the Mount of Olives as Zechariah, I believe chapter 14, first reveals. This is the Lord coming and stopping midair, literally. He's in midair and he calls the church up with a trumpet, it says, the shout of the archangel, the shout of God and the trumpet of God. And the church is called up, the dead in Christ first, they're resurrected, and then we which are alive and remain. We're called up together to be with him in the air. Now I've underlined this term here, called up together, because it's one word, and it's our Greek word harpezo. And harpezo means to catch or to lead something away or to be caught up. 
All right, there's, there's a lot of doctrinal stances that say, well, why do you believe in a rapture? The term rapture is not even used in the Bible. Well, that's okay. The term Bible is not even used in the Bible, but we don't split hairs over that. But just so you know where it does come from, the word, we get the English word rapture from the Latin word raptir or raptus. And the word rapture was, was kind of derived from the Vulgate, which is the fourth century Latin translation of the Bible. And so the Latin word used for harpezo is raptus or rapir, which is the rapture or to be caught up. Even in modern English, when someone is in love, we call them enraptured. They're caught up. They, they're just dreamy-eyed or they're just caught up with their love for that girl or that guy. We call that being enraptured. It comes from the Latin word raptus or rapir, to be caught up with something. Here it literally means a catching up or a leading away. That's why we call it the rapture, because people smarter than you or I have studied this out, and they were called theologians, and they've introduced the doctrines and given us terms for them. So when somebody argues that, well, you believe in that? I had somebody one time say, I bet you believe in that rapture, don't you? I said, well, of course I do. They said, well, uh, that word's not even used in the Bible. I said, it's not, but I can tell you what the Latin word is. I can tell you what the Greek word is. I can tell you where it's found. And all they could tell me is what the preacher had once said. So it kind of made them look a little ignorant. Old Testament uh, examples and types. We believe in a rapture. We have to put a term on it. We believe in a rapture because the Bible has demonstrations of it. The Bible has patterns of it. Now, it's hard to believe in something that's never happened before, especially if the Bible doesn't give us an example or tell us it's going to happen. We base all doctrine on the Bible. Be very careful not to be the kind of Christian that bases doctrine on experience. Probably the most dangerous kind of doctrine is a doctrine that's based mostly on experience with a little bit of scripture mixed in. What we want to do is first and foremost judge all of our experiences in line with the word. And if we don't have any experiences, we're, we're building all of our doctrine on the word and not say, well, I've never seen it like that way, as they say with bad grammar. Well, I don't care if I see it or not. I still believe it. I've never seen God, but I still believe in him because the Bible says so. So let's look at some Old Testament examples and types of raptures or catching ups so we can kind of build a doctrine of what the rapture is. The Bible records three raptures before the church's departure or before the rapture of the church. This thus establishes a biblical precedent for such an event. If we've got three examples of the Lord rapturing somebody out of the earth, that builds a pretty good precedent. It lets us know the Lord is in the habit of doing this kind of thing. And so it shouldn't surprise us if he does it again. The first rapture was Enoch in Genesis. And it says Enoch walked with God and God took Enoch. That sounds like what we said in, in, uh, with uh, 1 Thessalonians, a catching away, to be taken up, to lead away. Enoch was seen no more. So it's not like the Lord took him from one place to another on planet earth. We know he completely was taken by God and he was caught up in God. A rapture is, th- is thusly God taking those who serve him. Enoch served God, God took him, and Enoch was no more. Our second rapture we see in the Bible was Elijah. There in 2 Kings chapter 2, Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. It was a horse and a chariot that separated Elijah from Elisha. It rode in between them, the Bible says, and when they were separated, because Elisha didn't want to see his father, his mentor, go, then all of a sudden he's caught up in the air with a whirlwind. Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven and Elisha saw him no more. He was gone out of his sight. Our third example, our third rapture was actually Jesus Christ himself. 
in Acts chapter 1 verse 9. And the Bible says Jesus was taken up from the earth and received into a cloud. And there were two angels left there. Probably the two witnesses that were at the empty tomb, which are probably the two witnesses on the Mount of Transfiguration, which would be Moses and Elijah, which are probably the two witnesses we see in the Revelation chapter 11. But we'll get into that in future lessons. When the Lord Jesus was raptured up, the Bible says the disciples saw him no more. And the angel said, you men and brethren, why marvel ye? For this Lord of yours, he will return in like fashion. What is like fashion? In the clouds with angels. That's exactly a picture of the, the rapture of the church as painted in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The Lord will descend from heaven with a shout and the glory cloud and the angels and, and will be called up to be with them. On top of that, the Bible provides us four types of shadows of the church's rapture. So not only do we have three examples prior to the, the fullness of the New Testament, that is the book of Acts all the way to the Revelation, we have Enoch, we have Elijah, we have Jesus. We have three types or, or three precedences, three actual raptures that have taken place before the church. We also have four types or four patterns that give us an, an, another full understanding that the Lord does want his children to escape wrath, especially those who he declares it's not appointed unto them to experience the wrath of God. So the Bible provides us four types or shadows of the church's coming rapture. The first uh, biblical type is Noah. The Bible is very clear on this. Very, this is a very famous passage of eschatological preaching there out of Matthew, or excuse me, out of um, uh, Peter and, and there in Genesis. And then Luke's gospel talks about, as in the days of Noah, his family of eight was delivered from the wrath of God. Now think about that. We are talking about the rapture happening before the tribulation so as to spare God's people from the coming wrath of God. The flood was God's wrath and judgment upon the earth. But Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and his family of seven, they were spared. And they were saved and delivered from the wrath and, and the destruction of their day, literally rising above the judgment of God in the ark. They literally were caught up. They, they rose above it. They rode upon the judgment of God. And then when the judgment of God was done, they came back down to earth. That's exactly what happens to the church. We're caught up to be in the air. Seven years of judgment come. And when the judgment's done, we come back with the Lord Jesus. We come back to the earth to rule, reign, and, and see his kingdom come. Noah and his family were set back on planet earth. They came back out of the ark and they ruled and reigned and repopulated the earth. Amen. Our second biblical type is Lot. Another passage in the Gospels. So as in the days of Lot, as is in the days of Noah, as in the days of Lot, so shall the coming of the Lord be. Lot's family of four, which eventually was only three. And that just goes to show you, you can be effectively walking with God as a family. And sometimes not everybody finishes the race with you. In this case, it was uh, Lot's wife. In fact, the Lord Jesus said in Luke, remember Lot's wife. Honestly, I like to make the argument that really only Lot came out of Sodom and Gomorrah. His two daughters, his two virgin daughters came out of Sodom and Gomorrah, but Sodom and Gomorrah never came out of them. It lets you know that you can raise children in your household and you know God, but you never teach your kids to know God. And though your kids grow up in the house of God and perhaps grow up in a righteous household, if you don't ever teach them right from wrong, they'll never learn it. 
And you can say, well, I did teach them right from wrong, but how they start living, that fully proves whether you taught them right from wrong or not. Amen. As is evident with the two daughters of Lot, they were virgins, though they came out of Sodom and Gomorrah. As soon as they were free from Sodom and Gomorrah, and the pressures and the, 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 the spiritual pressure of Sodom and Gomorrah, they reproduced a miniature Sodom and Gomorrah in those mountains, in that cave. And they got their dad drunk, which is Sodom and Gomorrah kind of behavior. And they had sex with their dad, which is Sodom and Gomorrah-esque behavior. Very perverse stuff. So it lets us know that as parents, we need to really be watching our children, praying with them. Not just telling them about God, but living the gospel out in front of them and praying that our children catch our heart for God. Otherwise, we may be the only member of our family that gets caught up in the rapture. Be ashamed that you go to heaven and none of your loved ones do. Horrifying thought. Needless to say, Lot's family of four, eventually only three, then just really down to him, they were delivered out of Sodom right before the judgment of God fell. In fact, the judgment of God could not come until uh, Lot and his family were removed. Just like the Bible tells us in Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that the Antichrist and therefore the judgment of God cannot come upon the earth until the church is removed. A third type provided for us or a shadow of the church's rapture is what I call the Mount Sinai invitation. Here in Exodus 19, it records God's command. God, in fact, God's purpose in his heart all along was for Israel to come out of Egypt and come meet their God, the God of their forefathers, the God of the patriarchs, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. God wanted that, that generation, that, that new nation called Israel, to come out of Egypt and meet him on this mountain and worship him there. And so this holy invitation went something like this. You can read it there in Exodus 19. He says, tell the people to sanctify themselves. Come not at your wives. Put on your white robes. And after three days, I will blow my trumpet and the whole nation will proceed up Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. And there, excuse me, not Horeb, but Mount Sinai. It is Mount Horeb, excuse me. Mount Sinai. And I will come down and be with them there. Well, that sounds a lot like the rapture. After three days will he revive us. After two days will he revive us, and the third day he will raise us up. Thus we will forever be in his sight, as the minor prophet said. But at the blast of the trumpet, at the sound of the trumpet, at the invitation of the trumpet of God, after three days, we're to go up and meet our God in a high place, Mount Zion, perhaps. We see that pattern here, and that's exactly what happened. They sanctified themselves, they put on white robes, and the trumpet began to sound, and that was their notice to come up the mountain and meet with God. And yet it was a horrifying sight. It terrified them because God was manifested on this mountain, and they didn't know what to do or what to make out of it. And unfortunately, when the blast of the trumpet signaled their command to go up and meet with God, they refused, and uh, they shrunk back in fear and disobeyed the command. There's a whole series of sermons in that story that I'd like to get into one of the reasons they shrunk back is you find out that in between leaving Egypt and coming to Mount Sinai, the Lord had proved them every day with manna, whether he could find them faithful in the simple commands of how to handle manna every day or not. And some of them gathered more than they should, some of them gathered less, and there was always a judgment. And so because they couldn't faithfully obey God day to day in the manna or the daily bread of God, the daily word, they were not able to obey God in the strong voice. That teaches us many things. 
simply put before I move on, if you and I can't be faithful and obey God in the little commands that he gives us, go to church, love your wife, read your Bible, pay your tithe, tell that person about my love, it's going to be very difficult to hear him and obey him in these big commands that he has for us. Amen. And then our fourth example is John's revelation. And that's, of course, John chapter 4, verse 1. It says that John's divine prophecy began with the voice of a trumpet calling. And that the Bible tells us exactly what the voice of that trumpet said. Come up hither. Come up here. And I'll show you things that must take place hereafter. I want you to see that, that John heard a trumpet. And that trumpet said something. And the, the voice of that trumpet said, come up here with me. Come up higher. Every day right now, the, the trumpet of the Lord is calling every one of us to come up higher. And I believe with all of my heart, if we will practice daily hearing that trumpet blast at us every day and say, take another step up, take another step higher, we won't have any problem obeying that trumpet when it blasts on that last day of the church's existence in the earth. So let's move on to our next section, page 13 in our curriculum, the rapture. Here's something critical. Uh, this is a church age mystery that's been revealed. Paul was very clear on this. He said the rapture of the church was a mystery, or that's the Greek word mysterion, or it's a hidden truth. And it was a hidden truth that applied only to the body of Christ as it was revealed to Paul. He didn't know anything about John's revelation because that was John's revelation. Paul was operating on what was given him. I say in our curriculum here, thankfully Paul was permitted to share the facts of this event with us. Otherwise we'd be ignorant in it. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Behold, I show you a mystery. Well, he says, if I don't show it to you, it's going to remain a mystery. But I'm going to show you something that would otherwise remain a mystery to you. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality." Notice again, it's describing the rapture, a trumpet's ch a blasting. We're changed in an atom of time. Uh, a moment is the Greek word atomos, where we get the word atom, the smallest divisible fraction of time. In an atom of time, we'll all be changed. The dead in Christ will be raised first, then we which are alive and remain will be changed. And our mortal will put on immortality, our, our glorified body, our, our state of eternity. And just as God took some of his previous servants and even his son from the earth by means of a rapture, so will he also take the church from the earth. This is what struck me as powerful preparing these lessons. If Paul hadn't specifically revealed this doctrine to the church, all we would have are types and shadows of a possible rapture. And we'd have to say the types and shadows of the Old Testament and the Lord Jesus being raptured in the book of Acts leads me to believe that the church is probably going to be raptured. That's the best we could say, had the Lord not revealed this mystery to him. But because the Lord did reveal the mystery, and Paul was permitted to share it through his epistles, we can say definitively, I know for a fact, we're going to get to be raptured just like Jesus was. We're going to get to be raptured just like Elijah was, just like Enoch was. That's going to happen to us. And I'm excited about it. Amen. Now we have a way of escape. We are guaranteed a way of escape. And that's what the Bible calls it in a couple places. Hebrews uh, 3, 2 says that. How, how shall we escape the wrath that is to come if we neglect so great a salvation? That, that, that how shall we escape? That's a reference to the rapture. 
How shall we get out of this thing if we neglect our salvation? The rapture will preserve the church from the great tribulation. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says, For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation there isn't just a reference of eternal life, but salvation is healing, it's deliverance, it's preservation, it's uh, having your needs supplied. It's the total package. So don't just think of it as eternal salvation, as, as receiving Jesus Christ as Savior, but it's being saved from wrath. We, we are going to be saved from the wrath that is to come. It's for this reason, the preserva- that is the preservation from the impending wrath of God upon all mankind, that Paul also calls the rapture, quote, the blessed hope, this blessed hope, Titus 2.13. And so we give you a reference here for more information on the rapture. We have a Christianity 101, Lesson 14 talks about it, and Eschatology Lesson 5 talks about the rapture in more depth. Now I want to move on to the namesake of this lesson, and that is the nine evidences of a pre-tribulation rapture. There are some folks who believe in a mid-tribulation rapture, that the church will live through the first half of the tribulation. There are those of our brothers and sisters in Christ who believe in a post or in-tribulation rapture, that is the church will live through all the tribulation and then be taken out of here. And then I actually, there's one man I greatly respect, he doesn't really believe in a rapture anymore, and I don't. I don't understand that. He's a great theologian, a great scholar, but he has somehow come to a conclusion that there's not a rapture. And I don't, I don't know what that means exactly or how you rectify that when we have so many scriptures. I mean, if I'm producing copious amounts of notes on this, there obviously has got to be a biblical precedent that you have to excuse as not being a rapture. We hold to, I should say, I hold to very firmly a pre-tribulation rapture. I've studied all this. I, don't, I believe in a mid-tribulation rapture. I just don't believe it for the church. There will be a mid-tribulation rapture. It just won't be for us. Here are the nine evidences I present for a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. Anyway, number one, God has not appointed his church, that is the Lord's body, for wrath. Hey, if we're not appointed for wrath, we're getting out of here before the wrath begins unfolding with the first seal of the scroll that John saw in heaven. The rapture will provide that way of escape for us. Now, we're not escapists, and we're not looking to get rid of duties or hurry up and come, Lord, hurry up and come. I'm hoping that through this teaching, you are emboldened and encouraged to realize we are not going to be living in modern-day Syria like our brothers and sisters in Christ are going through hell right now. That is not us. That's their micro-tribulation. But if you think about it, the world's been in turmoil for thousands of years. They're going through hell right now, but honestly, even as, I, as we record this lesson, the whole ISIS thing has really died down quite a bit. They're not in the news every day. And so this stuff ebbs and flows because mankind is unraveling. I hope this, these lessons on the revelation and end times put such a, cur- a courageous fight in you, you're able to find the faith and the freedom to go do what you're called to do. This promise of escaping the day of the Lord is to be used to comfort one another. That's what 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says. Therewith, comfort one another. And I note that it would be bizarre to try and comfort one another with the promise of impending wrath. I mean, how do you comfort one another? Hey, brother, I just want to comfort you, let you know that we're going to go through hell on earth because we don't believe in a rapture. You just be comforted, be of good cheer. The Lord will be with you. I need the Lord with me now. <laughs> See, how do you comfort one another with these words if, if well, you know, 
Even the pagan knows what real comfort looks like. It would also be unfair to make the last day's church endure the wrath of God. And again, the tribulation is the wrath of God being poured out on rebellious man and stubborn Jew. It's not fair. It doesn't seem, it just doesn't seem just in light of the scripture for, to make the last day's church endure the wrath of God when no other member of the church in times past has had to. That doesn't make sense to me. You know, the, the early church was persecuted, yeah, but that wasn't the wrath of God. The early church was martyred, sure, but that wasn't the wrath of God. We're talking about making the church go through the wrath of God when the Bible already said he's not appointed unto us wrath. So there's evidence number one. Evidence number two, Jesus taught that we should pray that we would be counted worthy to escape. That word means to flee away to safety. All the tribulation. Now he said that in his passage on eschatology in Luke chapter 21 when he's talking about the tribulation he said pray that you would be counted worthy to escape all of these things that are to come upon mankind so that means there are some that will escape there are some that will be able to do that that's the church who's living clean for God that's called by his name that is looking forward to his return this exhortation from the Lord came at the end of his teaching on the tribulation in Luke 21. How else could one escape these things that should come upon the whole earth? If it's going to come upon the whole earth, how do you escape them except through that blessed hope that is the catching away of the saints? Amen. That's point number two. Point number three. The church is the restrainer holding back the full manifestation of the spirit of lawlessness and antichrist. Now this is a powerful one. And this is probably out of all of these, the one the Lord has spoken to me the most about. The church is that great restraint that, that is holding back the spirit of lawlessness and the spirit of antichrist. Uh, Paul said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, this is the New American Standard. He says, and you now, excuse me, you know what restrains him now. That is the, what restrains the spirit of lawlessness, the antichrist. So that in his time, he, antichrist, will be revealed. Notice that the Antichrist has an appointed time. Now we know that there are many spirits in the earth. There is Antichrist is already in the earth. But that singular individual called the beast in Revelation, theologians call him the Antichrist. He's also called the little horn. He has an appointed time and he will be revealed in that appointed time. That kind of lends itself to realize that the Lord will allow him to be revealed. The Lord's in control of all of this. And yet the Lord says here, but the thing that keeps him from being revealed is the restrainer. And yet the Antichrist has an appointed time. So it's like the Lord has opened up and closed floodgates or, or shoots. And so in order for the appointed time to hit that the Antichrist can be revealed, the church has to be taken up so the Antichrist can come in and do his thing. The Lord's in charge of this, but we are the restraint. And until we're taken out of here, the church is restraining our mere presence in the earth is restraining the spirit of antichrist from doing everything he wants to do everything that he must do uh, we'll more on that here in a moment for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work only he the church who now restrains will do so until he the church is taken out of the way well, okay pastor how do we know it's the church well in in theological arguments there's only three forces in the earth that restrain dictators and corrupt power one of them is world governments and we know that world governments will be here until the end so that's not what's being taken out of the way number two 
the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a force that restrains perversion and darkness. But the problem is, after, during the tribulation, the Holy Spirit is still in the earth because he's anointing the prophets, the two witnesses. He's anointing the 144,000 witnesses. No man can come to the Father except the Holy Spirit draw him. So the work of the Holy Spirit is still at, at work during the tribulation. So it cannot be the Holy Spirit taken out. And so that leaves only the third power that the Bible speaks of restraining world kingdoms, and that is the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so if the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is taken out of the way, then that fits perfectly. Because uh, one of the things we see, and we'll cover this more in one of the, I think it's lesson six, the four uh, different types of saints, or the four different classifications of the saints, the church is one of the most, well, they're all unique, but the church seems to be the most powerful of all the classifications of saints, we've been given the most power and authority in pre-millennial man time. That is, we have the authority to cast out devils. We have the authority to heal the sick. We have the authority to raise the dead. We've been given the name of Jesus. We're born again. We're the only part of saints from, from uh, Adam, the first saint, until the last saint during the millennial kingdom. We're the only one of the saints that is called the body of Christ. The Old Testament believers weren't called the body of Christ. The millennial saints, excuse me, the saints in the tribulation aren't called the body of Christ. Only we are called the body of Christ. So it puts us in a very unique uh, classification of being. Let's read our curriculum here. The only biblical powers, biblical, not natural, but biblical, so that excludes governments. The only biblical powers able to hold back the fullness of the Antichrist are the Holy Spirit or the church empowered by the Holy Spirit as opposed to the apostate church, which is really gaining a lot of momentum. That is the church that plays church without any Holy Spirit in their midst. The Holy Spirit is uh, in, still in the church, excuse me, still in the earth during the tribulation. Therefore, the he that is removed must be the church. And furthermore, I point out the male pronoun he accurately describes the church who is also called the Lord's body. The Lord has a male body, not a female body. Plus, the Lord doesn't marry his own body. That would be kind of weird. The church is also called the new man of Ephesians chapter 2.15. And the church is also called the perfect man in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 13. Most, the theologians that don't believe that it's the church that is the, rest, is the restraint do so because the Second Thessalonians calls the restraint a he. And they don't believe that it's a, the church can be a he because they believe the church is the bride which is an, a, an erroneous biblical teaching. We'll cover that in one of the future lessons. But the bride of Christ, the angel very clearly tells you, is, is uh, the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly city. That is the, the bride's wife, uh, uh, the, the lamb's wife, the bride coming out of heaven. Uh, the bride of Christ is the heavenly Jerusalem. Not that Jesus marries a city, but you see that the heavenly city is all saints from Adam to the last saint during the millennial kingdom. That makes more sense that the Lord would marry all his believers, not just the church that started in Acts and ended at the rapture. I believe the Lord would include everybody that ever believed on him and his divine plan of salvation. Amen. All right, there's no evidence the tribulation saints will be empowered in the same manner the church has been. You don't see them casting out devils. You don't see them healing the sick. There's no evidences of them raising the dead during the tribulation. What you see them doing is calling down fire from heaven and you see them doing a lot of running. Run away is what they seem to be anointed to do. 
and to win the lost. You don't see them doing the same thing the, the church of Acts to, to the rapture is called to do. Amen. They are, the church is a unique type of saint, or, or the tribulation saint is, just as a New Testament church age saints differ from Old Testament saints. And we'll get into more of that in lesson six, the four classifications of saints. And I think that's a critical lesson so you understand what your race is, so you know how to stay in your lane and not be dismayed by what, what comes your way. There's nothing more terrifying of being afraid of dying every day. And I want you to hear me very clearly. We're not appointed to die. We're not appointed to martyrdom. Those in the tribulation are. Those in the early church were. We're not. We are the church that wraps up this thing and we go out glorious. Not, not a blaze of glory in a suicide mission. No, we go out glorious. We go out with such victory the world is glad to see us go. Because then the, Jew, the Jews explode on the scene and the Lord begins to use them in the earth because the church is gone. Our fourth point, the church is absent from the revelation after chapter three. This is our fourth evidence of a pre-tribulation rapture. The word church and churches are found in the first three chapters of Revelation 19 times. But from chapter four onward, the term churches is not used again until Revelation 22:16. Now think about that. From, from all, these, all these passages, from chapter six to chapter 19, the church is never once mentioned. And when it is mentioned in Revelation 22, it's mentioned as a closing remark to the whole epistle. So chapters 6 through 19, which deals with the tribulation, makes no mention of all, at all of the church. The saints mentioned in, in Revelation 6 through 19, because it does mention saints, they are spoken of as either belonging to the 144,000 witnesses, the two witnesses, or the tribulation saints. It's evident that these are different classes of saints, just as New Testament saints are a different classification of saint than the believers before Moses and those in covenant with God under the Mosaic law. And again, lesson six will cover that more in depth. Our fourth evidence says there's no mention of the church after Revelation chapter three. So something changes. This is just a line of evidence. And again, we build doctrine by gathering as much information as we can. We do it scientifically. The more evidence, the more testing I can produce, the better a hypothesis, the better a theory, the better a doctrine. Amen. Fifth evidence. There's a marked change in the divine attitude toward mankind after Revelation chapter 3. Now we know that we're living in the church age, which is the dispensation of grace. We could also call it the dispensation of mercy. God is being very merciful on mankind right now. The church age is the lastest, longest lasting dispensation there is in the whole Bible record. Even the millennial reign of Christ will only be a millennial. That's a thousand years. The, the church age has lasted nearly, right, just over 2,000 years. That speaks of mercy and grace. But we see a divine change in attitude or a divine attitudinal change toward mankind after Revelation chapter three. Remember after Revelation chapter three, there's no more church mentioned. So look at this. Chapter 1 is an introduction to the Revelation. It, it, it tastes like mercy. Revelation uh, chapters 2 and 3, these are micro epistles written to help current local churches and churches today, and they, they taste like mercy. <laughs> the Lord says, uh, if you repent, therefore, he gives them opportunity to repent, and he says, and I'll bless you. Chapters 4 and 5 take place in heaven with many different activities around the throne of God, and the overall taste and flavor is mercy. But chapters 6 through 19 are all about wrath 
and judgment being poured out on sinful man. And they don't taste like mercy. They taste like wrath and judgment. So what does that tell us? Well, see point two. The Lord has not appointed the church to wrath. So from chapter uh, five, excuse me, chapter six to 19, it's wrath, calamity, death, blood, angels, demons, persecution, martyrdom, betrayal, wars, rumors of wars, famines. It, it's hell on earth for pagan mankind. That, that doesn't sound like mercy. <laughs> Sounds like wrath. Number six, this one's quite interesting. And hopefully you can follow me on this one. Cha- uh, point six, John does not recognize the identity of the tribulation saints in Revelation chapter seven. In Revelation chapter seven, we're introduced to the 144,000 and the Lord, uh, John sees them sealed with God in their forehead and they go out and the next thing he does is he turns and in heaven he sees an innumerable company, myriads upon myriads before the throne of God and they're singing glory to God in the highest. And, and he's perplexed and his messenger who's with him kind of giving him the tour of the vision, he says, who are these? And the Lord, uh, John says, uh, not the Lord, but John says, Lord, uh, sir, I don't know, lowercase Lord, you know, sir, I don't know, who are they? And he says, these are the saints that have come out of great tribulation. Interesting that John sees this company of believers before the throne of Jesus, and he doesn't know who they are. He says, I don't know. Isn't that odd that if, this, if, if the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the church, not Old Testament saints, not tribulation saints, not the 144,000 witnesses, but if the church had to live through this and then make a mid-tribulation rapture out, don't you think John would recognize them? Because that's the body of Christ. That's the part of believers he belongs to. It's a unique spiritual group of beings that God ordained. As, he, as Esther said, or Mordecai told Esther, you have been born for such a time as this. You, we've been born in this time to be a part of this move of God because it's what the Lord wanted. It's odd if the church goes through the tribulation that John doesn't recognize them in heaven. We know that Lazarus recognized the rich man and the rich man recognized Lazarus, but, but John has no idea who these folks are. It lets us know there's a spiritual, there's a different spiritual identity to this group of believers. It's hard to imagine the great apostle John failing to recognize the body of Christ for whom he had labored for nearly 65 years at this time. Yet he does not recognize this body of believers standing before the Lord Jesus. Furthermore, the Bible doesn't call this group of believers the church. They are called servants. Now, all believers are called servants, but you and I are unique. We're called the church. They are called servants who have come out of great tribulation. This subtle observation further supports the fact that the church has gone before the tribulation. All saints or believers from all dispensations are collectively called the heavenly Jerusalem, the bride, the lamb's wife. Now we'll cover that more when we get to Revelation chapter 21. All right, point seven. Hopefully you're following along with all this. It's a lot of information to cover. Seventh evidence of a pre-tribulation rapture. The nation of Israel is not spoken of in Revelation 1 through 3, but is spoken of constantly from chapter 6 onward. Now again, this reiterates that the Lord is dealing with Israel through the Jews. He's dealing with the world through the Jews, not the church. The church is not mentioned from chapter 4 onward, but Israel is constantly mentioned. The Revelation's emphasis on Israel further implies that the Lord is, once again, dealing with mankind strictly through the Jewish people. 
because he started with the Jewish race through Abraham. He postponed them. The Gentiles were grafted in. He takes the Gentile church, which is combined. We've got some Jews in here. And then he takes them out. Now he's dealing with the Jews again because he's completing Dev Daniel's 70th week of prophecy. This point helps further reiterate the fact that the tribulation is Jacob's trouble, not the church's trouble. It's Jake, we could say it's Jacob's problem. It ain't the church's problem. Hallelujah. Point eight kind of ties into point seven. Maybe we could combine them. I separate them. The revelation is largely, quite largely, of Jewish character and focus. Here's some statistics for you. Matthew is the Jewish gospel containing 92 Old Testament references. Think about that. Everybody considers Jew, uh, Matthew to be the Jewish gospel. It's the gospel written to win the Jews. It uses terminology that confounds the Jews and kind of causes them to do some soul searching. It has 92 Old Testament references. Hebrews is considered the Jewish epistle. And it has 102 Old Testament references. The Revelation contains approximately 285 Old Testament quotes. That is a Jewish-flavored vision. That is a Jewish-flavored epistle to, to help the end times. Jesus is referred to as the Lamb, which is a Jewish idiom or a Jewish term. 27 times after Revelation 1 through 3. Think about that. Jesus is referred to as the Lamb 27 times in the Revelation and all of it after chapter 3. Lamb is used only four times in the rest of the entire New Testament and never by Paul. This is just a Jewish term. You're seeing, again, how Jewish, how Jewish the Revelation is because if you think about it, you're in the last days and you're trying to figure out what's going on and you're a Jew who's been born again, you're of the 144,000, you're going to be able to relate very easily to the Revelation because it's speaking your language, though you're now part of the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. Chapters 11 and 14, oh, excuse me, previous point, the 144,000 come from the 12 tribes of Israel. Another point, uh, chapters 11 and 14 use language enti relating entirely to Jewish worship, such as temple, altar, temple worship, court of the temple, holy city, olive trees, ark of the covenant, etc. Again, just proving the point of how Jewish the revelation is after chapter 3. The woman and the man-child of chapter 12 are Jewish. The Bible says so very clearly. Michael, in Revelation 12, always stands for the Jewish people. He is the prince that is assigned, by prince we mean the angelic force, the great angel that's assigned to the nation of Israel. He appears in, my, in Revelation chapter 12 and then in Daniel. He has never been a symbol for the church. Never has Michael been associated with the church. Amen. And then, of course, the remnant of Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, is Jewish. It is a Jewish remnant that flees Judah or Judea and escapes to the mountains. So again, all this proves that the Revelation is largely of Jewish character and focus. It doesn't use any church terms. This, this helps to build this case that the church is long gone before the Antichrist signs his contract with Israel and kicks off these last seven years. And our last point, which I think is probably the strongest argument, other than the Lord is not, where the church is not appointed under wrath, is that the rapture date is a mystery. We all know that. No man knows the day or the hour. The rapture is a mystery. And that's why we live constantly ready. But notice this. Since the Antichrist's peace treaty kicks off the tribulation, a mid-tribulation 
at 3.5 years or post-tribulation, seven-year rapture could be accurately predicted to the day. Think about that. If we believe in a mid-tribulation rapture of the church, well, we, we could be able to say this is when the Antichrist signed the treaty. This is the day, this is the hour, this is the minute. You could get on Google probably then and find it. You could then set your watch and realize the church was going to be raptured 3.5 years from that if you're a mid-tribulation rapturist. If you're a post-tribulation rapturist, you could set it by seven years and say this is when the Antichrist signed the treaty and uh, seven years to the, the minute, seven years to the hour, we'll be in, in the bedroom looking to go. And some Christians, you know, I don't know if you could, you know, have a joyful time during these seven years. They, be, they might be living like the devil up until then, knowing that tomorrow I got to repent because the rapture is happening. So the very fact that the rapture date is a mystery, and if, if we have a mid-tribulation rapture, we could time it from the first signing of the treaty. If it was a post-tribulation rapture, we could still time it from the first signing of the treaty, either three and a half years or seven years. That debunks the fact that no man knows the day or the hour. Even if you didn't know when the peace treaty was signed, you could tell when Antichrist walks into the Holy of Holies and declares himself to be God, whoop, we're out of here. Or three and a half years past that if you're a post-tribulation rapturist. I think this is one of the strongest. Furthermore, what's the point of a post-tribulation rapture? Because some folks believe that, that the church will be raptured after seven years. What's the point of that when the Lord is coming back at the same time to destroy his enemies and all of his saints are supposed to be with him. So what is it? We get raptured up. And the Bible says we come with him on white horses. We rapture up just to run to the heavenly stalls and hop on a horse and come back. It doesn't make sense. And I, one of the things about theology and eschatology in particular, they, the, one of the rules theologians use is the simplest explanation is often the most accurate. They also call it Occam's Razor. That which seems the most simple is probably the right way to go. And so some of this just gets a little too convoluted. So let's conclude here our, our lesson. Should be overly evident from these nine proofs that the church, that is the Lord's body, will not be here to see God Almighty bring Israel back to himself, complete Daniel's 70th week, and punish his enemies. We, on the other hand, we are to preach his gospel and win the lost until he's ready to deal with Israel again. And I say amen to that. Let us not neglect our great salvation, or as Hebrews calls it, our so great salvation. Because if we do, Paul says in Hebrews, how shall we escape if we neglect the salvation? I, I, I trust that this, this lesson here has encouraged you to not be discouraged, to realize that we're not appointed to wrath, that we can punch at this thing, we can preach at this thing, we can live holy and clean for God knowing that there is coming an escape, there's coming a rapture, and we run our race hard until the very end. We're not going to be living in fallout bunkers or some kind of weird spiritual prepper. We're going to preach this gospel, do mission work until the Lord comes. We're going to enjoy life because he gave it to us in abundance. Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for this Sunday school lesson. We thank you for this pod school lesson. Bless those that have listened. Bless those that have been able to watch this. May these lessons continue on in perpetuity, blessing those and encouraging them in this great hope that we have, that you're coming back for us to rescue us, to redeem us, and for us to see your salvation. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.